From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Denver Mayor Michael Hancock joins us live. Then I talked with the next generation of voters in this moment of division. This election, one of the big problems I dealt with was stress because there's so many people around me, including my parents, that were freaked out. Even people who can't vote, it's really, really stressful when there's nothing you can do about and your rights are being debated right in front of you. It's stressful to see how family members and friends are leaving each other because of who they support. Who knows? Maybe it's all anarchy in 2028 and there's no voting. We don't know. An unabashed reality check on how the election is shaping teens thinking about democracy. And not all masks are created equal. An update on what's effective and what's not. The majority of CPR's membership base gives monthly. Thank you to our Evergreen members for making support for Colorado Public Radio an ongoing priority in your budget. Your monthly donation is CPR's most reliable source of revenue, and it's put to work each and every day directly serving communities across our great state. This has been a year filled with unexpected change. As a member, you ensure that free access to news, information, and music remains unchanged. Thank you. Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Will. Coronavirus cases have been surging for weeks, and with Thanksgiving coming, the possibility of even more looms in the next few weeks. The state has enacted new protocols to limit the spread, but can restrictions be enforced? And what more can local government do? Denver Mayor Michael Hancock joins us today to talk about this and other pressing issues. Thank you for joining us, Mayor. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit more. What has the city's response been? What response have you seen to the new rules put in place for coronavirus? And has the city been able to enforce those restrictions? I appreciate it. Well, first of all, it's a it's a difficult situation. I you know lacking uh, uh, a coordinated national response on nearly every aspect of the pandemic. All of us, uh, states, counties, and local governments are forced to act on our own. And so. Um, it, it's been a very difficult thing, but what the governor and with mayors and county commissioners are attempting to do um, is to find a balance where we not only protect and preserve life, lives, but we're trying to protect and preserve livelihoods. And so the orders um, are about personal responsibility. They're less about enforcement, even though we are all prepared to enforce it necessary. Uh, but the reality is it's a, it's a clarion call to all of us that this is serious business and we have got to work together collectively uh, to make sure that this boulder that's rolled back on us, we cap- capture it and we're able to reverse uh, the momentum of this virus spread around amongst the people. So today, Denver's one of 20 counties now in the state that, that's at the new level, as you pointed out, on the Dow system. And uh, we have got to uh, adhere to the restrictions uh, to, to uh, hopefully reverse the trends that we're seeing. You said the vision here is to get people on board, not necessarily to have to enforce the restrictions harshly. You've also asked that people avoid personal gatherings outside the household. Talk about the challenges enforcing that aspect of the restrictions. Is it just on the honor system? You know what? It it is. I mean, because at the end of the day, you want to get the message to people that, you know, it's 
very important that unless it's essential that you remain home like we did back in the spring, late winter and spring, to get control over, you know, over this virus and to flatten the curve. So it is extremely important um, that people adhere to it. And again, you know, we're not going to be out, uh, uh, you know, citing people, arresting them who are moving from their home to the grocery store or their home to um, to the job and, and, and what have you. But we're trying to tell folks, unless you absolutely have to leave for essential reasons, we ask you to remain at home. And what about folks throwing parties in their home? Because I know that we've seen those as well. Yeah, now that's, that's the situation where we're trying to be very strong in our message. That we ask people not to gather by any means, um, small or large. Um, and because that's what we know is really one of the biggest sources of spreading the virus, these small intimate gatherings at, in our homes or uh, medium-sized gatherings in our homes and backyards. So uh, we really are discouraging that. And, you know, neighbors are reporting um, people who are having gatherings in their homes. And if we uh, will have our inspectors visit, and you could be cited uh, for, for doing that because it is a danger to the public. On Monday, you were part of a video conference call with President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris to talk about city and federal leaders working together to fight coronavirus. What are the takeaways from that discussion? Well, first of all, it's a breath of fresh air to have a president-elect get on and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris get on and talk about we are here as your partner. Um, I haven't heard that in four years. Um, I was... Mayor of Denver when Obama was in office, and we felt like we had open access to the White House whenever we needed the White House, whether I was sitting in Denver or I was in D.C. We had access to walk in to talk to the vice president, the president, to speak to their team about whatever. And so it was a breath of fresh air that after four years to hear once again, the White House belongs to the people. You are welcomed here. We want to coordinate with you and that we're going to bring leadership to this challenge of the pandemic, and we want to be your partner in doing that. I got to tell you, I was overjoyed, as everyone else on the line was, it's back to some normalcy, or will be back to some normalcy, and importance of us leading, uh, protecting our people, leading our cities, and uh, having a partner in the White House is going to help us do that. Are there any specifics that you can share on that coordination, what that might look like with the federal government? Well, I think one is testing is extremely important that we have a coordinated process with testing. And as we look down the road, obviously, how do we dispense, coordinate, and organize the vaccination process with the new vaccines that are coming? And that is going to be really, really critical. I got to tell you, there, you know, while we're all excited about the new vaccine, had uh, the current administration remained in office, there would have been a great deal of concern about how we would communicate or be communicated to, because that's the way it worked. Uh, on how the vaccine process will work. But I, you know, it's um, uh, pretty um, uh, fantastic that we have an administration on its way that's saying we want to partner with you and coordinate on the vaccination process and to make sure we get it to the right people in the right order as quickly as possible and uh, we get uh, widespread vaccination. You mentioned. You mentioned that testing also is a focus. Over the weekend, two different coronavirus testing sites in the city reached capacity, and yesterday the Ruby Hill testing site closed early because of technology issues. What does this say about the city's testing supply, and does that bode poorly in the coming weeks? I think it says more about the lack of national coordination, um, because the reality is you have a local county, Denver, one of the few, by the way, in the country who are actually conducting this type of widespread testing 
um, in its uh, in its uh, jurisdiction. But we wanted to get it to people who are less likely to have access to testing, but who are disproportionately impacted uh, by the pandemic in our society. So um, what you see really is Denver moving ahead, um, doing what it can within a county with the limited resources that we had. Had it been more nationally coordinated, would have been. we will certainly not be as restricted as we are. But i got to tell you, I think um, with regards to testing, uh, Denver has uh, demonstrated its versatility, um, its nimbleness, um, and its willingness to be dedicated to making sure people have free access to testing no matter where you live in this city. And uh, there are very few counties around the country who have uh, made that kind of commitment and that kind of effort. What about hospital capacity? Are you concerned that hospitals could reach capacity if cases surge after Thanksgiving? Absolutely. You know, as the governor pointed out, one of the things we are trying to avoid with these uh, tighter restrictions is the catastrophic breach of our hospital system. And to me and to the governor, uh, I can tell you that uh, we view that as the, you know, one one thing you do not want to see happen uh, in your state and in your county. Um, And so we are doing you know, really these restrictions um, are, are driven principally, or at least largely, by um, wanting to save lives. And, and you cannot protect lives very well when you have no place for them to go to get the proper treatment. And so we are very concerned by the tightening of the capacity within our hospitals and, quite frankly, the, the how overwhelmed the staffs are and the lack of staffing resources that many of the hospitals have. The Centers for Disease Control recommends people not travel for Thanksgiving. A doctor from rural Colorado recently passed through DIA. He described it as a super spreader event because travelers were not socially distancing in lines or on trains at the airport. He was later hospitalized for nine days with COVID-19. What's your reaction to that? Are you working with the airport to improve safety protocols? Absolutely. We talk about it regularly. And, uh, you know, there are people... I mean, systems in place to help people get through the airport in a more coordinated and scheduled fashion. Verify is one of them. Um, and the airport is, is uh, stepping up its procedures and protocols in terms of monitoring and, and watching people who are not with masks, uh, who are not wearing masks, um, people and working with the trains as well. And so they've stepped up the frequency of trains um, and really encouraging people uh, right there that if the train seems to be packed, if you can wait um, for the next train, that would be great. And then we're also encouraging people, if you are traveling, is to go to the airport soon, uh, much earlier than you normally would, to allow for that type of, uh, uh, of patience that's going to be required to keep everyone safe. But the protocols are in place. And i got to tell you, you know, I've been, since the pandemic, at the airport for on business of, on several occasions, and I've watched as majority of people are wearing masks. I've watched as the airlines have stepped up and taken considerable um, uh, effort to make sure that people are queuing properly um, and, and have been pleased with it. It doesn't mean that there aren't breaches and there aren't failures at times that we have to remind people to put their mask on. We have to uh, remind people to stand back until you're asked to queue. Um, but I think that the airport is trying to stay on top of these matters. I want to move on to the issue of people experiencing homelessness. Denver's first sanctioned campsites for people experiencing homelessness go up in early December. But this is only a temporary solution to the affordable housing crisis. How will the city address homelessness in the coming months? Well, first of all, I appreciate your, the way you framed it as a temporary solution and during extraordinary times in terms of the sanctioned uh, 
safe outdoor sites. Um, the, re- the reality is is that um, we, we've got to continue to try to connect our neighbors who are experiencing homelessness to critical services uh, to help them um, achieve a more stable uh, lifestyle um, that uh, does not put themselves at risk uh, or the general public at risk. And I think that's, that's paramount. Um, you know, one of the things that we're going to continue to do is, is to push for um, the connection to resources and to services that are critical for uh, our neighbors. And 2B passing in November, which provides critical resources, was a game changer for us. And i got to tell you that um, I think that's going to help us to boost those services and to help uh, expedite and accelerate the creation of transitional and supportive housing for our neighbors experiencing homelessness and really, I think, bring much-needed um, energy to uh, what we're trying to do with uh, um, the, the challenge of homelessness in Denver. Do sanctioned campsites mean that tents that get clustered along downtown Denver City sidewalks will no longer be allowed? They have never been allowed, and they are not allowed. Uh, they have been, uh, you know, they pop up and we work in, we go in to clear uh, them in terms of, uh, at the same time, trying to connect individuals to to uh, critical services. The, the reality is, is that um, unsanctioned campsites um, are not healthy, they're not safe, they're not sanitary. And um, that's one reason why that we, we, we work to not have them established in the city. And we try to connect people to critical services and why we are looking at this model of a more sanctioned campsite where we can manage those conditions and keep people healthy and safe. On Monday, you released a statement with former Denver Mayor and U.S. Transportation Secretary Federico Pena about the Denver Public School District and its treatment of the superintendent, Susan Cordova. Specifically, the statement says Cordova was opposed and mistreated by school board members. Can you give examples of the mistreatment you saw? Well, we, you know, I've watched as some board during some board meetings, just observing where uh, she was often overtalked, uh, not allowed to complete statements, um, uh, the overreach by members of the board. Um, you know, these are things that you, uh, I had certainly hoped would be managed um, better um, going forward. But I think when you see um, the resignation of your superintendent. And then shortly followed by the resignation of your chief operating officer. And then just late last week, you had the resignation of a deputy superintendent. You know, it begins to become very clear that there is a dysfunction in place um, and concerning. And and at the end of the day, the people who are hurt the most are the children. The 91,000 children that are in those schools um, are learning remotely today, uh, trying to get their education. The families are impacted. The faculty staff are impacted. And, uh, you know, Federico Pena and I were independently working on letters to call attention to this and really call uh, the question of the board to establish a vision, establish a strategic plan, and uh, and really step up uh, and do a, you know, a better job in, in, in functioning as a board if you want to attract good talent. And then uh, we happened to talk this weekend and agreed to collaborate on it. So uh, we're not the only ones. Have you seen uh, some nine or 14 former board members have come out uh, with a great deal of concern? Former Secretary of Education, Arnie Duncan, came out and spoke about uh, what uh, he viewed as some, you know, serious um, failure of the board and concerns of the board. Um, but, you know, we're not only here to um, – call this out. We're here to say, hey, listen, we are here to collaborate with you. We're here to help make sure this gets right and gets corrected very quickly uh, because we 
believe that we got to stand in the gap for our children and make sure that they're okay in a system that is functioning properly. We have less than a minute left, but I wonder if you could address, you wrote in the letter that past Anglo superintendents were never struck, referring to teacher strikes in 2019. Do you believe that Cordova's treatment was due to her ethnicity as district's first Latina superintendent? Let me just say this. I, I went through that whole process with uh, Susana Cord- Cordova and uh, that strike process. Uh, my administration really advised uh, both sides of the table on this matter. I saw that, and as you looked at it historically, you didn't see strikes like that happen um, with her predecessors. And, and I think that is something that, that, that caused a great deal of uh, angst. Why now? Why does this have to happen? We did see, I will say, this type of striking occurring across the country at that point in time. Uh, but it was disappointing that this new superintendent, uh, a native and uh, educated in the system, you know, really honed her entire career in the system, uh, becomes superintendent, and within a very short time she's facing a strike. I, I just, it just begs the question, why now? Why now thank when you have someone who understands the system and loves the system? Mary Hancock, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Denver's Mayor Michael Hancock. Masks have come a long way since the beginning of the pandemic, when people were advised to cut and fold old T-shirts. There are a lot of options, both in terms of material and look, but fashion and comfort don't always go hand-in-hand with actually stopping the virus. Markian Haraluk is a reporter for Kaiser Health News and is based in Lakewood. He recently wrote a story about how states' face-covering mandates leave gaps in protection. Markian, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Avery. Thanks for having me. This story took you to the University of Colorado Boulder campus. What did you see there? Yeah, I happened to, actually it was kind of downtown Boulder. I was just walking down the street and noticed uh, three uh, college students uh, walking down wearing wearing their gaiters, uh, pulled down kind of below their, their chin. And uh, they were all branded with the Thomas's English muffin logo. So I had to stop and ask. <laughs> <laughs> and... Tell us more about gators and what you found out about whether or not that's, uh, I mean, they seem comfortable, but are they a good actual use for masking in the coronavirus? Yeah, so so there is some concern about um, the different types of face coverings that people are choosing and and options such as gaiters or bandanas or face shields might not be as effective as the cloth masks that uh, more people are wearing or, or some of the uh, manufactured products like a surgical mask or an N95 mask. It's kind of tough to make definitive statements, however, because, you know, everything differs so much. The, you know, the face mask that you got off of Etsy or the mask that I got from my mom or the one that we bought at Target, they're all made of different materials and with different construction. So it, it's kind of hard to say, you know, this is how, how well a mask works. This is how well a gator works. This is how well a bandana works. But the testing that we have seen uh, gives us some clues. Um, you know, the for, for instance, when researchers test a sampling of of cloth masks, they find they all work somewhat well. Between they block between forty to sixty percent of the size of the particles that we think are responsible for transmissions. That's not necessarily the same case with bandanas or face shields because they're open the bottom and they let those particles escape. 
And then gators are kind of in this middle area of some controversy. There was an initial study from Duke University that tested a single gator, and they concluded that not only was it not effective, it might even be worse than wearing nothing at all because the thin material used to make the gator appeared to break droplets into smaller ones that could hang in the air for hours. And uh, subsequent studies then uh, looked at different gators, different materials, said, well, may, you know, gators maybe aren't actually worse than nothing, but they don't seem to be as, as good as the cloth face mask. So if you're going to wear a gator, I guess the take home message is double it up so you get kind of twice that protection. And that gets you somewhere closer to a mask. So this research you're describing, it's evolving quickly. Remind us, what are the most effective types of masks to wear? Yeah, the most effective ones are clearly the N95s or the disposable surgical masks, the kind of you know you might see on a rerun of ER or Grey's Anatomy. Um, and those are being manufactured to precise standards. That's part of the approval process where they can uh, they can claim that these masks are medical grade and, and can be used in, in medical settings. And early in the pandemic, we kind of discouraged people from going out and trying to buy those because we were worried there wouldn't be enough for the medical professionals who really needed them on the front lines. Supply chain is kind of caught up now, and, and those are in greater supply. And so if you really want to be get the most protection for yourself and protecting the people around you, the N95 and the disposable surgical mask are the way to go. Now, just briefly, in about 30 seconds before we go, <laughs> is there evidence that a standardized mask would be effective here, or has it been in other parts of the world? Yeah, you know, a great example is Taiwan. Taiwan, very early in the pandemic, they ramped up production and distribution of these disposable surgical masks, and they've done tremendously well with COVID. They're a country of uh, 24 million, nearly 24 million people. They've had fewer than 10 COVID deaths. Um, so there is some talk, you know, President Biden is thinking about it, maybe a national mask mandate, um, and other public health officials saying, hey, that's an opportunity to standardize what we're wearing and get a higher quality mask that's going to be better at preventing the spread of COVID. Thank you, Mark Ian. Mark Ian Harlick is a reporter for Kaiser Health News based in Lakewood. His story at khn.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The holidays will look a little different this year, but to keep your spirits bright, we are doing things differently in CPR's daily newsletter, The Lookout. I'm Francie Swidler from CPR News, and for Thanksgiving, we're featuring favorite recipes from Colorado Public Radio staff and their families, from classic cocktails to delicious desserts, surprising sides, and excellent entrees. Find them all in The Lookout this week, along with a big picture of the day's news in Little Bites. Sign up to get The Lookout free at CPR.org lookout. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Middle schoolers are a ways off from voting in their first election, but some paid attention to this last one. When I talked with students from a Denver middle school, Embark Education, two words kept cropping up. Stressful and confusing. As the adults in their lives considered voting issues and bubbled ballots, these kids wrote about qualities that they think are important in a president for their global studies class. Here's Athena Leja. She's 13 years old. The ideal president would be kind and understanding to everyone. Hayes Thornton is 12. For me, my ideal president would be honest, like with the coronavirus, like giving people some information on what they could do to stay safe and how to keep themselves healthy and their family healthy. Braden Sinisvet said he's learned the qualities of a good leader by watching his parents. He's also 12. 
For me, I think it would be someone who's educated. I feel like if you're going to be a president, if you're going to be the most powerful figure in the United States, you need to know what the heck is happening. Elijah Nacht is 13. The two qualities he wants to see in a president? Empathy and more of a sense of reality. We met on video chat to talk about their experiences watching this election as the next generation of voters. I asked Elijah how he sees national elections affecting his life. I can see them definitely affecting our lives onto the future. Not as much now. It still affects us because our parents are voting for what's going to happen in the world. And when we grow up, it's going to be us voting for the next generation. I think that this election, one of the big problems I dealt with was stress. Because there's so many people around me, including my parents, that were freaked out about the election. They were freaked out that someone they didn't want for president was going to be president. And when you have something like that around you, it makes it really stressful. That whole week, I couldn't fall asleep. And I see several of you nodding. Is that stress that the rest of you are also feeling? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, I know I have a bunch of friends who like came out as LGBTQ plus to me at like a pretty young age. And I know how stressed and like scared they were during the election. And it made me scared for them, to be honest. And even people who can't vote, it's really, really stressful when there's nothing you can do about and your rights are being debated right in front of you. Yeah. What about for you, Elijah? Stress-wise, well, Mm -hmm. I was definitely stressed, but mostly just listening to my parents because they were super stressed because they both work in healthcare and they were both really worried about like what was to come because it was really bad. So they were just both really stressed about like what would be the future of their jobs and like, Mm -hmm. yeah, that was the main thing that I was hearing. And tell me about who you're having conversations with about politics outside of your global studies class. Who are you talking with and what are you all talking about? I talk with my parents, like at dinner, in the car, and also with my little brother. How old is he? He's nine. I mostly talk about it with my friends. Sometimes I talk about it with my parents. But um, it's a lot easier to talk about it with your friends because they usually share a lot of the same ideas that you have. Um, I talk to my parents. They're very political. They like to look at the news and fret about every little thing that someone did. They freak out. Is it stressful for you to talk with them about politics? Sometimes I'm just not in the mood, you know, but sometimes I am. Yeah. And I want to get a gut check. How are you all feeling about U.S. politics and democratic systems right now after a stressful election? Um, it's, it's a little bit like nerve wracking and not really because of like politicians necessarily, but more the reaction from their supporters. Cause I know like our new president's getting sworn in in January and I'm guessing there's gonna be some crazy reactions from people everywhere. Me too. When I see people like arguing in the streets, I'm like, oh my God, this is happening Like, this is our world now, and it's just crazy to see that happening in your own world. Like, seeing people argue about what they believe in, like, it's just hard to see people in that state. And I feel like it's separating people and that our world, like America as a whole, is just getting separated into two piles during this election, when it should just kind of be one big pile with people having their own beliefs and other people letting them have beliefs. 
Yeah, like Trump's been tweeting nonstop about he, how he won the election and how they're going to recount the votes and how there's been voter fraud. And it's it's confusing because there are no actual facts pointing towards what he's saying. And it's confusing for everyone, especially considering there's a lot of like younger people like my age on social media who are being told so many different things from like so many different like sources. And we just need to like look at the facts and not make it about opinions or anything like that. And what about the rest of you? Where do you go for information and how do you know what to trust and what not to trust online when there is so much out there? I normally look at the New York Times. My parents also look there and I normally do trust what my parents say. I agree with that. I trust my parents. I trust my parents a lot, but I also look for a lot of the sites say if it's opinion or not. I try and get ones that are always just fact-based. I kind of feel like, kind of like Elijah was saying, um, today's world is kind of based off of opinions. People don't really know the truth and what's going on when they should be looking that up themselves, forming opinions on that and not just forming opinions off of what they see online. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's huge. So what would you want to change going forward? How do you change the way that information gathering happens or elections happen? For me, in a president, if they were going to go have a news conference and like go out and say something really big, like about COVID-19 or anything that's happening in the world, any big issues, I'd want them to get facts and have it from like scientists that know, or professionals that know what they're talking about instead of just stating something in their opinion or something that like, oh, I think. So when you are old enough to vote, what issues do you think will be most important for you all as you pick candidates? I definitely think like abortion and healthcare, and also climate change and candidates' plans to like take care of our planet. That's going to be in 2026 when we are first allowed to legally vote. So 2028, really. How different is society going to be in 2028? How are we going to be looking at the world? How is the world going to change? I can't make a decision about who I'm, what I'm going to vote for in 2028 because who knows? Maybe it's all anarchy in 2028 and there's no voting. We don't know. Do things feel really unstable to you guys right now? Because saying it might be anarchy by 2028, that's huge. Yeah, it's felt very unstable recently with everything going on in the world right now. And there's no like certain point that we're going to find a vaccine or it's really confusing right now. There's no there's nothing that's guaranteed. It's really stressful with online school and the election just like being over, hopefully. Yeah, honestly, it's so scary with COVID happening. I had an aunt and uncle who were high risk and they got it and they were hospitalized. And then one of my mom's friends, her children got it. That was so scary too. Everything's so scary. And there's you can get go to one new site and they could be like totally neutral. Both sites are totally neutral, but there's always another opinion to make you trip off and just totally second guess yourself. And there's always something to oppose. So it's confusing, especially now, because there's so many different opinions in the world. To kind of add on to Elijah, I feel like kids nowadays are kind of pushed into politics and growing up a little bit. Like even right now, we're all talking about the election and we're only like 13 and 12. It 
it's like, it's crazy. We're still kids and we already know about this. And it's just stressful to know that we have to deal with this. And this is our world now that we have to deal with this now, even though we're so young. Um, I feel like both sides can be crazy during the election. People fight over things that are stupid and stressful to see how people are just disconnecting, how family members and friends are leaving each other because of who they support. Yeah. When we talk about politics, we talk a lot about how polarized the U.S. is. Do you have friends who you disagree with on political issues? For sure. A lot of kids, a couple kids actually on my hockey team, we were just talking. It was like the election. Someone just brought it up and someone was like, they were just stating their opinions. It was just kind of strange how many different opinions there were. How do you handle that when you disagree with people that you're close with? Oh, uh, for me, yes, you have a different opinion than that person. And yes, they like maybe they voted for Trump and maybe you voted for Biden. But they you don't know why they voted for Trump, really, if you just know that they voted for Trump. Like, he he could, his values or what he's going to do could help and benefit their family and their way of life, and Biden could benefit yours. So if, I mean, if it worked, so you shouldn't be broken up. Can I add on to what Elijah's saying? I don't really have any friends who I don't, who have, like, super different political beliefs than me and my family. But I do have, like, some relatives and some cousins who are my age, and I know that they like strongly support Trump and it makes me really sad because I know politics are politics and we should be able to put them aside to have friendships and relationships with other people because that's how we learn from knowing other people who don't think like us. But it's concerning to me to have like a relationship with someone who I know is voting against my rights as like a woman who's voting against like my friend's rights, who's voting against like people I know's rights. Yeah, at one point I did have a friend who supported different things than I did. He was very disrespectful. Like, political things are just, Democrats and Republicans, they're fine. But if you just take it to a whole new level and blame it on your political beliefs, that's not okay. And you're clearly each paying a lot of attention to politics. Tell me why it's important to you to pay attention even though you can't vote yet. Because paying attention, being educated, it's one of the big things that we can do to keep this country a good place. It's important to pay attention to politics for others' rights and for our own rights. At this point, it's not about like the economy anymore. It's more about human rights. What if I want to marry a woman one day? Yeah, yeah. definitely adding on. It's extremely definitely about rights this whole year. Like, it's overcast by COVID, yet there's so many, like, police brutality, racism, and just so many things. And Yeah, even if you think it's not important now, it's going to impact our future. Well, looking to the future, what advice do you have for President-elect Biden about how young people hope he'll lead the country? I hope that Biden lives up to our expectations and the things that have been happening in this world Now they're just becoming bigger problems and they've been going on for generations and this should have been stopped earlier. I hope Biden will really, really focus on the things that are really affecting everyone in this world, specific communities. And yes, he can focus on the economy. Yes, he can focus on all these things, politics, but 
I think what really matters are the things that are going on now, COVID-19 and rights, human rights. I hope that he will live up to his word. I hope that he will take care of LGBTQ youth and POC youth. And I just hope that he like lives up to what his campaign has been about, like kindness and having a decent person in office. That's Hayes Thornton, Elijah Nacht, Athena Leha, and Brandon Sinisvet. They're seventh and eighth graders at Denver Middle School Embark Education. They talked with me about how watching elections this year made them consider what they value as future voters. In their two years in Congress, Democratic representatives Jason Crow and Joe Neguse have been through a government shutdown an impeachment, and a once-in-a-century pandemic. It's been a baptism by fire. CPR's Caitlin Kim spoke with both congressmen about the lessons they learned in their first terms. Jason Crow had never run for public office before he won, so he didn't have a lot of preconceived notions about what politics entailed. I knew to basically be prepared for the unexpected, uh, which is exactly what happened. So, new year, new Congress, but the same political standoff as the shutdown is about to hit the two-week mark. The freshman class of the 116th Congress, which Crow and Neguse are members of, were sworn in during the country's longest government shutdown. And even once that ended, it didn't get any easier. Debates over troop withdrawals, Russian interference, Iran, impeachment, a global pandemic, and economic shutdown. It's been a Ph.D.-level crash course in governing. There's no playbook for what's happened the last two years. You know, I jokingly say now that I've been in Congress for two years going on 20, uh, which is some days is what it feels like. It's always a steep learning curve when you start a new job, and not all the lessons have been fun or encouraging. Like many called to public service, Nagu says he was a little jaded when it came to the notion of Congress. The speed in which and with which this body responds to problems, right? Um, because it, it just, things move at such a glacial level. Outside, masked up, and standing at the base of the Capitol steps, Nagu says his most recent frustration with congressional intransigence is the inability to agree on another coronavirus relief package. It's a tangible example of how Washington has the power to resolve or to prolong problems that affect the lives of every Coloradan. But he also says the challenges of the last two years have displayed the resiliency of the people. My faith in government, in some respects, has been restored by this experience. because I, and, and my faith in the American people and in the people of our state in particular has certainly been reaffirmed. And like the American people, with all its differing views, there is a lot of division. Congress hasn't been immune from the partisanship currently stretching the democratic fabric of our nation. Crow says he tries to look past labels. What I try to do is um, not question people's motivations, not necessarily buy into the, um, uh, the, uh, you know, the image of somebody that might be fed to me through uh, public sources, and actually just get to know the person first. It's helped both men form friendships and working relationships with Republicans that have flourished over the last two years. However, they both also played key roles in one of the most partisan events of that time, the impeachment of President Donald Trump. Nagus was on the Judiciary Committee that gathered the evidence, and Crow served as an impeachment manager presenting the case in the Senate. The role of Congress, regardless of your political affiliation, is to serve as a check and balance and to make sure that there's oversight of the executive branch. 
And uh, I've been very disappointed in the extent to which uh, some members of Congress have, uh, have not fulfilled that, uh, that duty, in my view. Despite what TV and movies may say, the life of a Congress member isn't all that glamorous. It's a lot of time traveling. It's a lot of time away from family. And the path to having a bill become a law isn't as simple as Saturday morning cartoons would lead you to believe. But the payoff is the opportunity and ability to make a positive difference in someone's life. Perhaps a bill that has moved me the most was Ali's Act. Dear Congressman Joe Nagoose, my name is Ali Tumblin and I Nagoose introduced legislation inspired by Ali's letter, getting a specific hearing device covered by insurance. It meant a great deal to me to be able to, to communicate back to her family that uh, we had heard her, that we listened, that we got her letter, and that we decided to do something about it. I just hope that we can get it done next year. With all the challenges the members of the freshman class have faced, Crow says it has led to opportunities and even some changes. He remains hopeful for what's to come. I still believe in the American project, the American idea. And that is uh, the, the idea that is difficult as it might be and as messy as it might be and as divided as we might be right now, there's still a path forward. Uh, and there's still ways of uh, improving ourselves and our nation and working towards that, that more perfect union. In January, Crow and Nagu start their second chapter, one that's yet to be written and still full of opportunity. The challenge will be how they take what they learned in the first two years to keep pushing forward. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. This year's holidays are upon us, and for many families across Colorado, the COVID-19 pandemic means that they will look very different this year than in years past. CPR's arts and culture reporter Monica Castillo brings us the report of how people are making the, marking the occasions. For Christine O'Connor in Denver, this year's Thanksgiving dinner, amid the coronavirus and new directives from health officials to stay home, means a new strategy. Well, usually we're in Atlanta with grandkids and one of our daughters and family, so we won't be doing that. Instead, this year, O'Connor's husband will be grilling a big turkey to accompany the usual fixings. We'll just exchange the food on the porch. I'll leave a box on the porch and one daughter will pick it up and then drop off things she's delivering to us. That's a far cry from the usual, gathering around a big table to celebrate each other and give thanks. Other Coloradans like Greg Crush and Hotchkiss will go ahead with their originally planned gatherings despite the warnings from health officials. Well, I'm a farmer, live in a rural area, and pretty isolated anyway, so I don't see much change there. So I would say some of my family, they're nervous. Uh, I don't feel anybody that in my family is, you know, paranoid about it. It's, it's a fact of life, and it's out there, and you take precautions if you choose, and if you don't want to take precautions, you don't. Others are doing a hybrid. Samantha Koch says she still plans on seeing her family, but with some extra precautions. Um, so we're going to be visiting with my parents, and they are older and they do fall in that high-risk category. So, you know, we'll be taking precautions beforehand. We've kind of been limiting going out and being around a lot of other people just to keep that risk down, making sure that we don't have high temperatures or, you know, have any of the um, known symptoms of COVID and making sure that before we leave that we have all of these things in check and that my parents are still comfortable. But many officials, like Pueblo Mayor Nick Gratisar, are asking families across the state to create new traditions. And we're hoping to convince people that, you know, do something different this year. Usually on Christmas Eve, I've got 
40 or 50 people at my house and Santa Claus comes for the for the little kids and the grandkids uh, but uh, this year it's it's got to be different we can't have all those households intermingling because we don't know who's got the virus and it's becoming more and more prevalent in the community Last week, Governor Jared Polis asked Coloradans to stay at home with their immediate families for the holidays to slow the spread of the coronavirus. But uh, my family is, is just having Thanksgiving with um, uh, my partner and our kids. Uh, we, as much as we'd love to, to see uh, my brother and sister and Marlon's uh, sister and dad and my parents as we normally do, uh, it's even more important us, to us to make sure that, that they're there for many years to come. Uh, and I know that that's the case for your family as well. It's a sentiment shared by Dr. Glenn Mose, executive director at West Pines Behavioral Health in Wheat Ridge. He says his Thanksgiving plans have also been scaled back. Every year uh, we've had this tradition probably the last uh, seven or eight years of getting together with with um, family and, and friends. Um, and we, we share the responsibilities at each other's house every year. So our, our friends told us uh, about a month ago that they were going to bow out. We've just decided that, that we're not going to invite anybody else into the house. I'm looking forward to spending the, the Thanksgiving with my wife and my, my kids. Um, and it'll be different than, than years before, but that doesn't mean it, it um, can't be a good and positive experience for us. Most acknowledges that this can already be a particularly tough time of year for people emotionally. Throw in the pandemic, and things can get really isolating. I anticipate that people are going to um, need to find way be flexible and, and to adapt this year in ways that they haven't had to in, in the past, and um, and find different ways to to celebrate the holidays. People are going to have to find other ways to connect because ultimately. We need to stay connected to each other. Coloradans like O'Connor are finding those connections even if Thanksgiving is going to look different this year. Sharing food on Thanksgiving seems to me to be the primary way I can connect. We're also going to do a family Zoom call when people are in three different time zones. So that's going to be a little tricky. So that's the best we can do. I think everybody will at least feel connected. I'm Monica Castillo, CPR News. Finally today, the lead singer of the Lumineers and his new solo album. Wesley Schultz recently released vignettes. The 10-song collection of covers includes songs by Tom Petty and Bob Dylan. The opening track is Bruce Springsteen's My City of Ruins. It was originally written about Springsteen's adopted hometown, Asbury Park, but Schultz says the events of 2020 gave the song a new meaning. My city's in I was walking through Denver right after we had Black Lives Matter protests. There's just boarded up windows everywhere. There's messages on spray painted all over the city and it looks destroyed. It just felt like all over again this song makes sense. The boarded up windows and the empty streets and my brother's down on his knees. My city of My city's in a ruins. Come on, rise up. 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 
nice city of ruins from Wesley Schultz, the lead singer of the Lumineers, off his new solo album, Vignettes. Thanks for joining Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.